The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and very pleased to be joined by pianist Conrad Tao. Welcome, Conrad. Hi, Jeff. So great to have you here. Saying hi to you is becoming a regular thing here at the Utah Symphony, because you are serving as an artist in association with us this season. It's sort of like an artist in residence, just a different way of saying it. But I think it seems like a nice culmination of your relationship so far with us. This is ongoing. And um, I wonder what this interaction has meant to you over the years. You've really been coming here a lot. I've been coming here a lot. You know what was nice about it, though, was that I came here first with several guests. Right. I came here with a few guest conductors. Right. I got to know the orchestra before I got to know, like, Thierry. Oh, so I feel like I've yeah. been able to have multiple, like, even though I've been coming back here, it's still been multiple relationships with yeah. players, with different conductors every time, with, with staff. So it's it's really lovely. It feels like an immense privilege to be able to come back so many times to a place and to really feel like I can get to know an orchestra. You've been coming here for how long now? Do you remember the I first the f- time? I, I don't remember how many times. It's been yeah. a lot of times, but the first time was 2010. 2010 I think so. it was like fall 2010. Okay. And, and I think the first time was a replacement. And right. I've always found it funny that, especially in the first few years, it was like toggling back and forth between like being hired and then filling sure. in. Sure. People don't know that about this business. Sometimes artists get hired to replace people who cancel or get sick or injured or something. Yeah, cancellations kind of make a lot of rising careers. It really it's, does. It, I was going yeah. to say, I mean, for you, it was an opportunity to show what you what you have. Yeah. And we immediately re-invited you and immediately knew we could count on you again when there was another replacement. You're you're well past the replacement days now. You get your own. <laughs> I still like now. it. I miss yeah. it sometimes because I've done f- far fewer uh, sure. fill-ins, and I really do miss it a little bit. Um, and I miss the combination of things. I miss it from when I was a, a teenager too. Yeah. Because you would have a little bit of a, no one would know what to expect, and um, and everyone was a little nervous. And I always sure. liked going in in that environment. Yeah. It was always yeah. kind of an exciting. You know, you have the option to kind of save the day. Yep. Um, or you know, put people further into misery. So it's kind of a fun position to be in. You, you, you definitely can ruin everything even more, mm-hmm. but you never mm-hmm. have. So I want to talk to you about the other st- the things you're doing in, in your, in your um, musical life. I, in addition to all the work you've done as a solo pianist, you're actually pretty active as a composer, which yeah. I was interesting to learn about you. Did this start out for you mostly as a vehicle for expression on the piano, or did, were you always an orchestral guy? How did it sort of manifest itself in the first days? I've been composing for... Hmm, Pretty much my entire musical life, Mm -hmm. which really is my whole life, because I don't remember starting to be a musician at all. I started improvising my own melodies at the piano shortly after I started picking out melodies at the piano. And the date that my parents always give for that was uh, the age that my parents always give is about 18 months. When I first started playing nursery tunes one note at a time at the the instrument. And so I think shortly after I tried figuring out how to write my own melodies or how to how to at least play my own melodies and, and then I started reading music when I was about 2 I started studying the violin before I started studying the piano because violins come in extra small sizes They do they don't do that for pianos They don't do that for pianos yeah. and and as a result local piano teachers didn't want to take me sure. just yet cuz yeah. I kind of could only 
stretch across two yeah, keys. You, you had a reach of a There's third. a limited, <laughs> a limited amount of repertoire that they can perhaps foist on me. But when I started reading music then, I think I have all these sketchbooks from when I was about three years old yeah. um, where I'm trying to teach myself notation because I've begun reading it. Mm-hmm. And just like when, um, when toddlers or infants or like young children start trying to write based on learning to read, yeah, like that kind of moment before they've been taught like proper penmanship or anything like that, it all looks a little wrong, but you can see where it's trying to gesture towards. It's almost like creating language instead yeah, of learning it. It is, I mean, yeah. which is really closer to the actual experience of learning right. language anyways. Right. How do you express yourself within it? How do you learn the rules? Sure. Um, and then because I I guess I was creatively inclined, it's, it's kind of like, you learn the rules so that you can use them and break them on your own terms, sure. right? So no, my relationship with notation was, you know, like that in the early years. So everything looks wrong. Sure. And every all the clefs are like backwards or something and the key signatures don't quite make sense. But it's 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 starting to, it's, it's an attempt at having it come together. Well, how long did your expressiveness outpace your aptitude? Like when did you, when did you catch up? When did you learn to be able to write it correctly? Did well, that, that happen See, that's later? the funny thing because yeah. I, I, yeah, I think about this sometimes. I started studying formally, yeah. which is to say I started studying the uh, basic uh, principles of music theory yeah. uh, when I was about five. Okay. And so that was when I started learning how to write properly and, right. and learning harmony and analysis and all of these things. The funny thing is sometimes I look at these three-year-old sketchbooks and I'm like, well, you know, now I feel like I'm almost trying to go back to that where it's like trying to have that freedom with the no- with the notational vocabulary sure. and trying to be as like unintentional. You're, you're doing things wrong, right. quote unquote, be- because you don't know how to do them correctly. Sure. Um, but it's actually, this, this gets back to another thing I had mentioned before that I don't recall starting yeah. because it was so early. And sometimes I envy the people who, especially composers, this is actually more common in composers, that I, I envy the people who discover that music is an expressive outlet maybe a little later in their lives. Like That's maybe during undergrad, for example. Uh-huh. A lot of composers only get started during undergrad where they realize, right. oh, this is something you can do. Right. This is something that you can do to really explore ideas that you're really fascinated by. Um, because of course it's not this mystical thing. It's, it's linked to our everyday lives. Um, sometimes I envy the people who have that experience because I think there's less baggage. They're coming to all of the repertoire at once. Sometimes I, I have some friends who were like just hardcore screamo kind of fans until undergrad. And then they discovered like they heard Piero Lunaire for the first time and thought, Oh my God. And so they learn like, 250 years of repertoire in like two years. Which is the hardcore screamo of our world, Pierre Lunaire. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you can go further yeah, you than that. Could. But yeah. I, I but that always excited me a lot. Yeah. And and I think that sometimes, especially from the playing side of things, so many people do start pretty young. And yeah. it's it's nice to be reminded that that doesn't have to be the case. And I envy it because I feel like sometimes those those folks who get started a little later and discover music a little later come to it with a very powerful sense of intention that I have had to um, definitely create for myself. Sure. Although at the same time, I'm kind of grateful that I don't remember starting that young because kind of from the beginning, it was just always there. So if I was going to continue doing it, I, I felt pretty early on that I needed to figure out reasons yeah. for doing it. So I just had to do the work of verbalizing to myself what my goals were. It's almost like you were learning 
it, it wasn't just that you were learning to be disciplined as a composer, as a person later in life would. You were learning to be disciplined as a person in all ways. I suppose. And, and also those things were happening in concert. Disciplined as a creative person, yeah. I think, too, in the sense of just thinking about what I was trying to express or yeah. what I was curious about expressing. Sure. I mean, beyond, like, even before whether or not you succeed at it. Just, like, even thinking about what you want to do, what you're trying to get at or what you're curious about. And it can be anything. It can be explicitly musical, mm -hmm. I think. It can be very not. It can be like a, a recent piece, for example, a, a piece for violin and piano, which is being premiered in April um, at Washington Performing Arts by the violinist Paul Huang and the pianist Orion Weiss. Oh, that right. piece began as uh, there were two starting points for it conceptually. One was this amazing scene uh, at the center of Jim, Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train, mm -hmm. which is a triptych of a movie. Sure. And there's this gorgeous scene in the second section, which is mostly a one take, yeah. uh, mostly a one shot. And it's, it's a conversation between two characters and it was just so tangible. The relationship between the two characters was so tangible and it felt like a presence. And it felt, and it was like a relationship that was shifting across the course of this like 10 minute conversation or however yeah. long it was. And it felt so like palpable. Yeah. And I wanted to write a whole piece that kind of existed, uh, like that the core of it was at the relationship between the two instruments. So mm -hmm. that was one thing. And then the other thing was like some film footage that I had shot of trees and blowing in the wind and like the sun peeking through them that I had just shot this like two minute video of that in Spokane. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's not musical. Sure. I love the idea of other art forms influencing you as a as a musical artist. I mean, I think there's tons of stuff in Jim Jarmusch's movies to yes. mine. You could do a whole cycle of works based on some of the things you experience by watching his work. But I wonder if you've ever used as an inspiration some of those old three-year-old sketches. Have you ever been able to employ them? <laughs> no, in a, no. In an I, adult composition? I've never, I haven't returned to them in a very, yeah. very long time. There, I think some stuff I'm pretty comfortable leaving as juvenilia. Sure. Um, sure. If partially because it would feel really indulgent, I think, to return to that yeah. stuff. I have returned sometimes to stuff from when I was 11, 12, 13, mm -hmm. 14. Like those years yeah. were pretty fruitful. Yeah. And sometimes a little, because that was still a time when I was writing a lot of imaginary pieces that would never, ever be performed. Right. There are some ideas in those pieces that are a lot more totally flights of fancy mm -hmm, as opposed mm -hmm. to writing for people and right. thinking. And of course, I think that's very valuable. I think that the ultimate joy of making music is that you're writing for people and you're doing sure. it with people. But it is kind of fun to go back to these like little sketches from 11-year-old ADHD me. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, I don't know, maybe 15 bars of an idea. And I'm like, okay, I'm moving on to something else. Yeah. But some of those ideas are just like, oh, you weren't worried about yeah. difficulty at all. So it's freer in some ways musically. And, and so there's it, good stuff yeah, there. That it, you exactly. Wanna, so it's yeah. fun to try to translate some of that. And, yeah. But that's just stealing from myself when I feel bereft of material. Sure. You know, I well, mean, I, but you don't have to tell anybody that you're doing it. I don't have to tell anyone. <laughs> although sometimes I like telling people, sure. if only because it demystifies the creative process a right. bit. I think sometimes people are so attached, myself included, yeah. to this idea of like inspiration. Yeah. And yeah. the truth of the matter is sometimes it's just banging your head against a wall or sometimes it's like, you know, I mean, this was what 
one of the many things that I was so invigorated by when just working uh, or or uh, reading like avant-garde poetry or just like yeah. avant-garde art in general yeah. is the idea of like expression coming through like cobbling something together mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. generating something together, you know? I really like working in different settings in different, like both in literal physical settings in different mm -hmm. places, but mm -hmm. also in different s workflows. Yep. So I like working with pencil and paper. Uh -huh. It's wonderful. It's one of the, it's actually, I, it's underappreciated working with pencil and yeah. paper because you have total freedom. Um, I like working with pencil and paper. I like going into a notational software and dealing with the boundaries that that uh -huh. creates for yep. you. And then I like working with within like Ableton uh, where I can just be working with audio mm -hmm. because then you think sonically in a different way. Right. And so, and it, for, it forces you to think like a little bit more abstractly from a representation standpoint, sure. right? Because if you want to work with audio, are you going to use your MIDI audio or are you going to record bits and pieces? Are you yeah. going to translate it? Basically, in the process of creating a work, creating as many openings or like uh, spots of porousness mm -hmm. so that you allow another step of translation or interpretation to enter. Because I really do trust that. Yeah. I think some people are rightfully suspicious of intuition and um, and like the sort of mystique of interpretation. Sure. But for me, it doesn't feel that mystical. For me, it feels very present and like, for me, like, uh, intuition is about, like, a very, very uh, intense physical, like, material presence. Yeah. So, and I don't really like the Cartesian split that gets invoked when we're talking about, like, taking away intuition completely. I'm like, right. well, I don't think of these things as necessarily so separate. Right. So I like, personally, I like giving myself as many opportunities to use my intuition in the process of creating a work because I find it helpful for getting a little closer to the core of something. Yeah. Let's let's talk about other composers for a second. Sure. Because I, yes. I want to I bend your ear about some of the people I know you've collaborated with. And over the past year, you did some work of Jason Eckhart. And yes. I've, I've met Jason... Um, I know his work. I love it. Obviously, he inspires you. But what other currently living people sort oh of get God. your juices flowing? Who oh, is, my God. Who are the ones? This is the best question. It's also the scariest and most stressful one. Well, I, um, let's, let's, let's say now that if you there's no way to inadvertently leave anybody out. Yeah, exactly. Just I'm not going to try to be comprehensive. We'll blame it on, our, on our producer, Chad. He edited <laughs> you out. <laughs> I um, Right now, I'm listening to a lot of the music of the German composer, I think he's German, uh, Ger Berlin-based composer Eno Poppe, mm. whose music is fantastic mm -hmm. and so rich and rude and like erotic in this very strange way yeah. and and uh, just really exciting and and sometimes like curiously traditional in a way that I find very invigorating. Yeah, kind of along a similar line because I get similar pleasures out of her music uh, is Olga Neuwirth, sure, who has that. This wonderful, the first thing I ever heard of hers was her fantastic adaptation of Lost Highway. Yeah. Which is Me just too, actually. marvelous yeah. and yeah. so successful. And also, like, so successful as an interpretation, but also so different from the source material. For sure. So much more frenetic, actually. I would yeah. argue a little bit more accessible mm -hmm. than the movie, which is quite mm -hmm. uh, challenging in right. some ways. Right. And uh, so I love her music a lot. I've been playing uh, music by Patrick Higgins who is the guitarist for the band Z's, okay. who I have been a fan of since I was like 15, uh -huh. and who were really important to my, me growing, my growing up. And I don't know how to describe their music. They're like scronky jazz uh -huh. and noise music kind of all wrapped up into a okay. really intense package. And, yeah. and Patrick wrote me a piece 
last year, which I'm hoping to start performing next year. An acoustic piece. And a piece for solo okay. piano. Ah. And it's just been such a pleasure oh, to great. work with him. Yeah, I don't know. There's so much. I've been listening to a lot of One O Tricks Point Never's music, uh-huh. partially because I'm seeing him live present some new material in May. And, and I really think that he's like the prog artist of our time. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. There's so much. I There's know. so much. It's such an exciting time to be a music lover. It is. Just like talking about literature, though, you can go yeah. on forever with this topic. And I can't let you go without talking about at least one other composer. And this is going back. Back a little bit in time, yeah. but when you were with us in February, you performed Age of Anxiety by yeah. Bernstein, which is a mix of literature and music. Yeah. I just yes. think it's very much so. I and an interesting fan- approach to representation Absolutely. of literature. What do you think, you know, we're in the centenary year right now, so everybody's thinking about Bernstein, particularly American artists, and, mm-hmm. you know, is he going to be remembered as our Mozart 100 years from now? Who knows? Who cares, mm-hmm. maybe? But I'm curious what's going through your mind when you think of Bernstein this year. I mean, you're probably getting to play a fair bit of his music. I know you've done I'm playing Age the of Age of Anxiety a, a decent times. amount, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I really, it's, it's really lovely to hear so much of his music. I hope that there can be a few takeaways. One is... Um, we're honoring his music primarily, so I hope one of the big takeaways from that is that he, I don't want to say freely, because I think actually this was a source of some anxiety for him, Mm -hmm. just based on letters, but he worked in multiple worlds. He did. He he stepped between the worlds of theater music and concert music. Um, I think he really believed in musical theater in a way that I sometimes still do despite the fact that i find a lot of commercial musical the- current commercial musical theater frustrating yeah. i think he really believed in the form yeah. i think he really had hoped that it could become like an American opera, operatic form, but like a uniquely American one. He certainly did with Candide. With Candide, and also like his support of Sondheim's work as well. Like, you know, this kind of semi-operatic form that really took from American vernaculars. I mean, I think there's a real sincerity to that. I hope people can respect the earnestness of a lot of his expression. Yeah. But in addition to this, I hope that people can also look back at his legacy and remember the fact that he was a really, really wide-ranging uh, interpreter and conductor and supporter of of various kinds of musics. I think it should be remembered that pieces like Tarangalila, the Berio Sinfonia, mm-hmm. are pieces that he really kind of helped bring into the world. Well, he changed the way the entire world conceives of the Shostakovich Fifth Symphony. I mean, just with right. his tempo in the last movement. I mean, <laughs> just... Better or worse. Yeah, well, I know, <laughs> but I mean, I'm glad you said the word vernacular because I feel like he not only made statements in many different worlds, he coined vernacular in many yeah. of th- these worlds. He created the language of some of these things, particularly yeah. how he treated the Broadway idiom, yeah. I think. What else? What else is on your mind about him? I, mean, I feel it, like the, I, that's the last one is the thing I think about the most because yeah. I think that it, for me, it at least informs my interpretation of the music, mostly because I think some of his music is so familiar that we can start interpreting it yeah. with shorthand. Yeah. And that is really scary to me, just generally as a performer. I think when you have a familiarity with a text that you can kind of just be working from shorthand with it, that scares me because I think that the danger there is that you then are in, not interpreting a text, but like the semiotics of a text. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And that I'm suspicious of. Yeah. I think that when you are a performer, you can work from the semiotics of a text that are set in motion by history. I think that in a way that's maybe the more honest thing to do because right. you do not exist in a vacuum. You know, the truth is you probably will not be able to go to a text and have some sort of quote unquote pure, like in original right. relationship to it. Right. But I think it's important to have that, at least have an awareness of that. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about the broadness of his taste and... I've been thinking about that a lot because I think that that way we can hopefully get out of just thinking about the music as like a hard and reified vocabulary Mm -hmm. and and think more about like, well, what is this? What is the idea? What is the purpose? You know, this is interesting to hear you talk about now, you know, a month on ever after having heard you play the second symphony, because it really does give me a lot of perspective into your approach to the piece, because I might have called it understated before. Um, and I don't mean in terms of volume or approach or anything, but just in terms of sort of the uh, the emotional projection you were trying to make. But now I get it. You well, were... I also think that's a personal taste thing. Absolutely. Of but, course, but, right. But it's clear to me as, as a thinker, you're digging deep when you do this repertoire. It just feels better. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel very good, yeah. I think. I mean, that, I, I think some of it is just the indoctrination of a liberal arts education. Sure. I never finished. I have no degrees from anywhere, but I did have three semesters at Columbia before I left. That's enough. And You're it good. was wonderful. <laughs> and it really was yeah. wonderful. You know, I got to read all this Adorno, and I got right. to read all this sure. theory, and I got sure. to read all this poetry. It was yeah. wonderful. I mean, yeah. I was, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a humanities kid, so yeah. Columbia's a great place. So I think that just awaken like a real interest in in treating things this way and again this real belief that you can have this approach that some people might call like cerebral where it's like conceptual and you're you're trying to analyze a thing mm-hmm. um, and analyze it extra musically because mm-hmm. that's just my impulse to me it results in approach to the music that's very honest that just feels better it just yeah. feels better it's actually still all like affect sure. on some level I, but it I, I you know it it, yeah. it it all feels better and to reach a place where it like intellectual analysis and real bodily pleasure and affect don't have to feel at odds and can really kind of invigorate one another. That's like where I love to live if I can. And that's where I try to live. I can tell you as a listener, it's effective. It comes (laughs) through. I hope so. No, it comes through and it's very meaningful to hear you explain it. I know that as we record, you're preparing coffee of two to perform with us this week so i want to let you go but i do have a question that we have to ask it's kind of our stock and trade on the Mm -hmm. show because of our name and i want to know conrad have you ever seen a ghost do you have any theater ghost stories to tell us i wish i did i love i I believe in ghosts i love believing in ghosts that's maybe a better way of putting it i really i think that the impulse to believe in ghosts is so real and so beautiful Yeah. yeah um i have not seen a ghost myself Will I have some friends who have had very good stories, but none of my own. Well, will you promise to remain open to the possibility so the next time we have you on, you'll maybe have something to tell us? I will continue to be on the lookout. Conrad Tao, thank you so much for joining us on the Ghost Light Podcast. Pleasure. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. 